0: following is a teaching message from shore community church for more information on shore for our teaching resources visit www.shore.org.nz right now i think you're going to have to lean in and listen carefully this morning because the rain is going to be competing with us a little bit so we'll try and manage the mic level as best we can without pushing it into the realm of feedback so uh Here we go now i came across uh, an interesting website the other day it's called the global rich list so what it allows you to do is not just see the top 100 richest people in the world but actually see where you personally rank compared to the rest of the global population in terms of your income or your wealth and so what i figured out you enter in your net income and then it, it specifically gives you a ranking compared to the rest of the world. So it told me that I am the 298,053 richest person in the world. Yeah, specifically, so, which made me feel quite good about myself. Um, but then I looked down the bottom of the page and it told me that my monthly salary could pay the monthly salary of 191 doctors in Azerbaijan. So that didn't make me feel so good about myself. But I extrapolated some figures here so you can see. Uh, in the left hand column these are all New Zealand dollars and those are the gross amounts so you don't worry about trying to tax it. Just figure out which income block you are closest to and then on the right column you can see what percentage of the world's wealthy that puts you in. Okay? I know this is only one measure because it's not taking into account investments, assets and so on, this is just pure income. But if you look at where you sit there. So, what, what you see, pretty quickly, is that if you're earning 60 grand or above, you are very close to or within the top 1% globally of income earners. I, I think the, if the, the 1% mark would be about 70%, probably bang on, uh, 70, 70 grand, 1%. But roughly 60, 70 grand or above, if you're earning that much, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. Which is pretty incredible to think about because typically we don't feel that way, do we? We don't really feel rich. None of us really feel rich day to day. You're just surviving. You're just paying the mortgage or you're just paying the rent. You're just paying the bills. You're trying to provide for your kids. You're just trying to make life work. We don't feel rich at all. But this gives you a bit of perspective that compared to the rest of the world, we are in fact the 1% that we are the wealthy, that we are the world's richest people, that we have billions and billions of hungry neighbors around us globally, and we have an awful lot going for us. We have a huge concentration of wealth. And the reason I start with that is simply because when James talks about the rich, I don't want you to get the idea that he's talking about someone else. You know, James starts this passage by saying, listen, you rich people. And it's easy, I think, to assume well he's talking about someone else. He's talking about the super rich. He's talking about the people with the super yachts, the people with the holiday homes in the Maldives. You know, he's talking about the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. That's not me because we don't feel rich. But what I'm trying to show you is, globally speaking, we are all in this category. If you compare yourself not just to the people in your little world, not just to the people in your little bubble, But right across the planet, we are the rich. We are the 1%. If you've got a car, if you've got electricity, if you've got clean water to drink, if you've got access to education, if you can go and see a doctor, you have got far more than most people in the world. And so when James is talking about the rich, he is talking to us. He may be talking to specifically rich people in his congregations at the time. But as we hear these words today, we've got to hear this passage as being addressed to us. Okay, We can't think James is talking to some other group of people. We are the world's rich. We are the ones James is talking to. Now, that's not very comfortable because of the next thing that James says. And this passage, I know you are hoping for more of a kind of cheerful message on a rainy day, but this is actually quite gloomy. James says, listen, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming upon you. So we are supposed to have a massive weeping and wailing session this morning, right? In sackcloth and ashes weeping and wailing because of these miseries that are coming upon the rich. And the miseries are this picture of God's judgment that we read in verse 2. And it's a pretty disturbing picture of judgment. It's a pretty horrendous picture really. Uh, And what James does is he uses this future picture of judgment and he describes it as if it were already happening, as if it were already present. He says, your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth eaten and your gold and silver are corroded. He uses the present tense. He's picturing these things like it's a present reality, even though none of these things had happened yet. None of this had happened for the wealthy. They were still walking around, using their money, just having a good time, living in luxury. None of this had actually taken place. But James pictures this future judgment as if it were a present reality to make it more vivid, to give it more gravitas, to wake these rich people up, shake them by the collar and say, I'm talking to you. This is about you. The judgment of God is coming and you'd better be ready for it. And so this is disturbing stuff. It should disturb us. It should make us a little bit nervous, because we look at this and we think, is this talking about me? Is James, if we are the world's rich, and this is the judgment that's coming upon the rich, does that mean that this is the kind of judgment that's waiting for us? Does that mean that this is what God's going to do to us, just simply because we live where we live and we earn what we earn? Does that mean that this is what we're in for? It's a pretty, it's a pretty tough picture. Well, luckily, James doesn't finish there. He carries on. And as the passage unfolds, you start to see what the real issues are that James is pressing into with the rich, the wealthy. We start to get clarity as to what the specific stuff is that James has got an issue with. He, he brings these three accusations against the rich, and they clarify what the real issues are that he's going after. I want to just unpack these briefly. The first one is in verse, at the end of verse three, he says, "You've hoarded wealth in the last days." So the idea of hoarding wealth, it's just storing wealth up, stockpiling wealth, accumulating as much as we can. And so the problem that James is talking about is not these people having money, it's that they are hoarding wealth. They're just trying to generate as much of it as they can for themselves and stockpile it for themselves. And we don't really feel like we're doing that in our lives. I know we, we're not, it's not like we're sitting on massive piles of cash, most of us. We're not really hoarding wealth. And yet it's so easy for us, I think, to have this unhealthy preoccupation with money, for it just to start becoming a driving focus in our lives. And I was talking to a woman the other day, and they were talking about this, this woman's husband and the career path that he's been on. And as this woman was describing it, she was saying, you know, he he got into this particular field uh, because that's where the money was. And then he he made this change within that field to this because, well, there's more money in that. And then within that he decided to specialise in this because, well, there's more money there. And then within that he decided to, to work in this particular area because, well, there's more money in that. And just at every point, it was all because there's more money here and there's more money there and there's more money to be made over here. The driving, consuming focus was the pursuit of more money and how we can position ourselves just to make more wealth. There's something about money that just so easily gets a hold on our hearts. It just has a unique way of doing that. It's why Jesus talks so much about it And the gospel's constantly warning us against the danger of wealth, the danger of riches. He talks about it over and over and over again. Not that money's wrong, nothing wrong with having money, nothing wrong with making money, but we've got to realize the seductive pull that it has so subtly, below the radar of our consciousness often, it's pulling away at our heart, enticing us, distracting us, consuming our focus, becoming the dominant force in our thinking, our planning, our living. And a lot of the time, I think, for middle-class people, we experience this as anxiety about money. We just worry so much. We're not necessarily greedy in the sense that we want just more and more and more and more and more. We just worry all the time about money. It's what keeps you up, wakes you up at 2 a.m. in the morning. It's what your mind just goes to when you don't have anything else to think about, how much money, how, how, how your assets are doing, how you're going to generate more money. How, what's my financial future going to be like? What's the financial future for my kids going to be like? How, how am I going to make more? How am I going to get more? It just tends to be where our focus goes, and we just get so anxious about it. We just get so worried about it. We think we've got an anxiety problem. We're, where a lot of the time, what we've got is a money problem. And if we didn't worry so much about money, we wouldn't be so anxious. But this is the middle-class problem, is we're just consumed with anxiety. We're racked with anxiety about money. And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drive. He didn't actually say that last one. Don't worry about these things. You seek first the kingdom of heaven. And these other things will be taken care of. God knows what you need, said Jesus. You seek first the kingdom of heaven, and these other things will be added to you. I needed reminding of that recently, because I've got car problems again. And no one seems to know what the car problem is that's causing trouble. And so you start paying money just to try and get the problem sorted. And you're paying money before they even figure out what the problem is. And you start to see the money snowballing. And you wonder how much more money you're going to have to pay before they even get to finding the problem, let alone fixing the problem. And it, it, it stresses me out. It's making me anxious. And God's kind of brought me back to this passage and to the words of Jesus and just reminded me, don't worry. You spend so much time worrying about these things, fussing about these things, but you seek first the kingdom of heaven. You get your focus where your focus needs to be, and trust me, trust me that I'll take care of you. Trust me that I'll provide for you. Now, it's interesting that James says to the rich that you have hoarded wealth in the last days. You know, we think of the last days as the days before Jesus comes back, the end times, Some people think we're living in the last days now. Some people don't. But, you know, James, along with the other New Testament authors, believed that the last days began when Jesus was raised from the dead. So after the resurrection, we are living now in the last days. We've been living in the last days since the resurrection because the last days are these days when Jesus is going to return and he could come back at any moment. And we're living with that imminent expectation of Christ's return that awareness that Jesus could come back at any moment. He's already died. He's already been raised from the dead. He could come back at any moment. And when he comes back, we want him to find us focused on the things that matter to God, not distracted by the things that don't matter to God. And that's why James is saying, you rich people, you're so focused on things that don't matter. You fail to discern the times that you're living in. You're in the last days. Jesus is coming back. Don't store up for yourselves these treasures on earth. Focus on treasures in heaven, invest your life, invest your time, invest your resources and things that matter to God, matter to other people. And so often we can fail to discern that as well. That Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we want him to find us doing the Father's will, doing the Father's work, not just preoccupied and focused on money and wealth and lifestyle and creature comforts and upholding our own standard of living. Those are not the things that matter to God. Those are not the things to focus on in these last days. So then the second accusation that James brings against the rich is in verse 4. He says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And so he's, he's talking here to some landowners who had some laborers in their field, and obviously they were withholding wages from those people. These guys are harvesting their fields. They're not paying them their wage. And according to Jewish law, you were supposed to pay people after each day of work. So it wasn't a fortnightly paycheck. You pay people at the end of the day. It was a very daily, hand-to-mouth kind of existence. And so by not paying these laborers, these landowners are actually depriving them of the ability to put food on the table the next day for their families. And the way that James talks about this issue is just masterful. He uses this language that comes from a much earlier story in the Bible, where he says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, that's language that's drawn from the book of Exodus. Back in Exodus, you got the story of the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, and they cry out to God in their oppression, and their cries, Exodus says, reach the ears of the Lord Almighty. This idea of a slave people crying out to God against their oppressors and God hearing from heaven and responding. And now James takes that story and he transposes it into a new key and applies it to the situation in the first century and says, these these workers are like the Israelites, slaves. And you rich landowners are acting like those Egyptian slave masters. And that's not who you want to be. Because if you remember, God's judgment came upon Egypt. And if you're not careful, God's judgment is going to come upon you. Now, I know it's easy to to move straight past this one because we feel like, well, I don't withhold anyone's wages. I'm sure those of you that are employers, you pay your staff fairly. I'm sure you're not defrauding anybody. I'm sure you pay your staff a reasonable wage. But before we move on too quickly, I think it's worth at least considering... That even though we may not directly oppress people like this, we may not directly defraud people like this, we can indirectly participate in a system of injustice and oppression just simply by the way that we consume stuff and the way that we make consumer choices. There's a study that came out last year by Tear Fund and Baptist Action in Australia on fair trade. And honestly, this isn't an issue that's really been on my radar. I've never really paid much attention to fair trade, but as I've looked at this and come back to James 5, it's reminded me, you know, the gospel has something to say about this. It affects the way our lifestyle relates to other people's lifestyle. And what this study found is that it's focusing particularly on the, on the fashion industry or the textile industry. It represented 106 companies, and those companies would represent brands that we buy clothes from all the time. Really common, familiar brands and labels of clothes that we're going to buy all the time in very common everyday uh, places in New Zealand. And it's looking at fair trade practices that those companies have, not just the specific companies, but back through their supply chains, making sure everybody that's involved in producing those garments is paid fairly and working in reasonable conditions, which is what we demand for ourselves, right? And so what they found, and to be fair, there's been improvement over the years, but what they found is the median grade these businesses received was a C plus, and the median grade for worker empowerment was a D D+. And so what it says is that when, we, when you go and buy a new shirt, in order for that shirt to be produced at a price that's acceptable for you, it may well require a whole lot of people working in some conditions in Bangladesh or somewhere that are very, very substandard some very shabby conditions, some really poor circumstances at a really unfair wage, and often involving children, sadly. And it's easy for us to say, oh, well, at least they're getting work, you know, at least they're getting, getting something. Uh, but you've got to consider, would you tolerate that? Are those conditions that you would find acceptable for yourself to work in? Children being forced into labor much earlier than they should be unsafe work environments. These are not things that we'd allow members of our family to participate in. And yet, indirectly, just simply through our consumer choices, we've just got to be globally aware enough to recognise there's a lot of people working in really substandard conditions to make it possible for us to live the lives that we demand to live, purchase the things we demand to purchase, and have the standard of living that we demand to have. That comes at a cost to other people. And so we can't escape James's words quite as easily as we thought we could. And then James says, finally, in verse five, "You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves." <laughs> this vivid image. Literally he says, "You've fattened your hearts. You've fattened your hearts, and that's not a good thing because you're like a big fat cow, and it's going to the slaughter," is what James is saying. "The judgment of God is coming." And again, none of us feel like this is us. We don't feel like we live in luxury. We don't feel like we live in self-indulgence. You know, that's those other people. That's the people that have got the super yachts down at the viaduct. That's not us. But again, let me just give you a little bit of perspective, okay? So what I'm trying to do this morning is just open our eyes a little bit, a little bit of global perspective. Even a little bit of national perspective is not a bad thing. Let me read you out the spending habits of North Shore people. (laughs) And this is pretty reliable data. It comes from Westpac through their banking app, which tracks the spending habit of 96,000 Kiwis, and you can quantify it down to regions. So here's what us North Shore people are spending our money on. Per month, North Shore people spend $75 a month on fast food. And that, interestingly, that goes up to $84 if you're aged between 36 and 55. $85 per month in bars... 173 per month in cafes and restaurants. Now, we might say, well, okay, that's just life, and that's how we live, and that's not extravagant. Okay. Um, But just put this next to some other statistics. One in four New Zealand households have to skip meals because of poverty. One in ten New Zealand children live in material hardship where they're forced to go without seven or more items that are necessary for their well-being. And those kinds of items are things like Adequate shoes, adequate clothing, adequate housing. They're not luxuries. And that's, to even be the one in 10, those kids have got to be going without seven of those items. So you think there's going to be a lot more kids going without four, five, or six of those things. And this is right on our doorstep. You know, it's what I'm trying to help us see is that poverty is not out there somewhere on the other side of the world. It's right here. It's in our city. You could drive 15 minutes, 20 minutes from here and find people living in real material hardship, really doing it tough. And that's all the while we sit in our cafes and bars and restaurants. And there's nothing wrong with going to a restaurant. I'm not trying to send us all on a guilt trip, nothing wrong with going to a cafe. But we need to realize we're living in a bubble. We're living in a predominantly white middle-class bubble and our culture wants to keep us as insulated inside that bubble as we can so that we don't see what's outside. We just keep demanding more so that our lifestyles can be propped up. But at a certain point as Christians, we've got to pop the bubble and become a little bit more aware of who's outside, our own little circle of comfort. Because those one in four households are looking at us and they are saying, you're the ones living in luxury and self-indulgence. We don't think it's us. You always compare yourself to people richer than you, don't you? We all do. You all compare yourself to people a couple of notches up on the ladder. But when you consider those who have far less than we do, there's a lot of people in the world looking at us and saying, you're the ones living in luxury. You're the ones living in self-indulgence. And we've got to take that seriously and do something about that. And then James says, finally, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And this is interesting. It could be that James is thinking of a particular person that these rich people are opposing and killing, murdering, condemning uh, someone in in their community. But some commentators have noticed another level underneath this, that the phrase the innocent one is literally the righteous one. Now, who else in Scripture is called the righteous one? Jesus, right? And Jesus certainly fits the bill of what James is describing here. Jesus was the innocent one who was condemned, who was murdered. And he didn't oppose those who were condemning and murdering him. Isaiah talks about like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. And it may be that what James is saying is that when we misuse our wealth and our resources, and especially when we do that in a way that hurts other people and mistreats other people, it's like we're crucifying Jesus all over again. It's like we're participating in this behavior that put Jesus on the cross. Even though these people, they didn't literally crucify Jesus. But James is saying, when you live this way, it's kind of like what you're doing. There's an inseparable connection between the way we use our money and our resources and the way we treat Jesus. That's why Jesus himself said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Whatever you haven't done to the least of these, you haven't done to me. One day we're going to find that there's a very strong relationship between Jesus and those who are least and last and forgotten in our society. And when we mistreat others through the use of our money resources, we are mistreating Jesus. So, This is all pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? This is all pretty, it's a hard pill to swallow, I know. And James kind of just leaves it there. Like all James wants to do is just give give us this blistering judgment and then he's good. He walks away, drops the microphone, he's done. But what I want to try and do is end on a little bit more of a hopeful, positive note because I think we need that, right? Rather than just leaving us all down in doom and despair and self-pity over this. I want to just give us, to finish off, just going beyond a little bit of what James says, a couple of things that we can do that are constructive and positive in the way that we approach our wealth, the way that we approach our resources, recognizing that we are the 1%. We are the world's richest people. So how do we deal with that? How does the gospel relate to that? Two really simple things to do. It's two simple values. The first is simplicity. Someone said, the rich must live more simply that the poor may simply live it's a powerful statement because we live in a culture that is constantly convincing us that we need to have more you need to have more, you need to have the next thing, you need to have the next house, next car the next kitchen appliance the next lounge suite the next video game the next guitar pedal the next whatever it is, the next shirt, next pair of shoes, next handbag, next holiday, next experience, always, always, always the next thing, the next thing. And this is fueled by social media, isn't it? I mean, I'm just personally glad that I got married before the age of Pinterest. Because now you go on Pinterest and you see what a wedding is supposed to look like. And you see what kids' birthday parties are supposed to look like. It's unbelievable. All the stuff that you're supposed to have, how everything needs to be completely color-coordinated, all these different extras that you're supposed to provide, from the table decorations to the goodie bags to every single thing. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to go on Pinterest, don't go home and think, oh, Instagram's the devil. It's not like that. It's just that we need to be aware. At a certain point as Christians, don't we need to say enough? Don't we need to say we are going to live counterculturally, rather than just be absorbed into this? This kind of consumeristic mentality. What does our faith say to this? What does the gospel say to this? At a certain point, we've got to say, enough. I can live more simply. We've got a friend who uses the phrase making do. I can make do. I can make do with without all of this stuff for my kids' birthday party. I can make do with this lounge suite for a little bit longer before replacing it. Right? I can make do with these curtains a little bit longer. I can make do with this car a little bit longer. I'm not saying there's not a time to upgrade and replace. I understand that things, things wear out, they need to be replaced. It's just that our culture schools us to replace and upgrade at a ridiculous pace. Far beyond what is functionally necessary in order to keep us consuming more, in order to keep us constantly dissatisfied with what we have. And we need to wake up to these cultural dynamics. And rec- we don't see it because it's the water we're swimming in. But this is our consumerist, materialistic culture. We need to recognize this. And we need to say, I can make do. I can live a little bit more simply. Because the way that I choose to live indirectly, I'll never see it, but indirectly has a bearing on how millions of other people live around the world. The rich must learn to live more simply that the poor may simply live. And then secondly, just simple generosity. Nothing new in this. I know you all know this, but there is nothing that will release the grip you have on your own finances like generosity. A little bit of simple generosity. Giving money away. It's a double blessing because not only will it do good for whoever you're giving the money to, but it's one of the ways in which God will pry your white-knuckled grip off your own money and start to teach you it doesn't belong to you. It's His. He's the owner of your resources. He's the owner of every dollar in your bank account. It doesn't belong to you. He's the owner. You're just the manager of it. You're the steward of it. The Bible says, freely you've received... Freely give. You know, how generous has God been to you? Can we not take a little piece of that generosity and express that to people around us? It can look like so many things, right? It can look like just everyday random acts of generosity to people that we know or come across who are in need, just blessing them through helping them out in some way. It can look like organizational generosity, giving to the church, giving to other ministries, giving to parachurch organizations, giving to humanitarian organizations who are involved in serving and reaching and helping and empowering people. Uh, can look like, it can look like child sponsorship. Anna and I have been sponsoring a child through international needs since we were teenagers. In fact, it's been several different children because as the kids graduate through the program, there's another one that, that comes along. It's just something that we've, we've done and we put aside the money and you correspond with your sponsored child. And, and child sponsorship is still one of the most effective ways to lift people out of poverty, globally speaking. Simple, practical thing that you can do. Freely, we've received. Let's be generous people. Again, so countercultural, right? In a culture that is constantly telling you, you need to maneuver yourself to get more money. Let's say no to that. We're citizens of a different kingdom. Let's move against the tide and say, well, we're going to actually exercise a spirit of generosity. Giving back, giving out, lifting up, and trusting God to meet my needs. So, we've got to recognize that we are the 1%. We, right now, are among the richest people on the planet. I know we don't feel like it. I know you've got all kinds of bills to pay this week. But you're still the richest 1%, most of us, in this room. And we need to be aware of the pull and the squeeze of our culture towards consumerism, individualism, materialism, that'll constantly try and pull us away from God and His priorities, His values, His agenda for our lives. And it may be this morning that God's just gently touching your heart and saying, I want to set you free from the love of money. Maybe that's just become something, and maybe you see it more clearly now than you've seen it before, and you just realize, you know, money has got too much of a hold on my heart. If you're really honest enough to let God examine your life and search your heart, maybe you realize, you know, money has just become too much of a thing. You don't even need to have a lot of money, by the way, for money to become a consuming focus in your life. It's always just wanting more than we have. And maybe this morning you recognize, you know, it's just become an idol. It's become something I love more than Jesus. It's become something my heart is attached to more than God. I'm more concerned about lifestyle, financial security, convenience, creature comfort, standard of living than I am about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Only you can answer that question. Because outwardly, you can never say it's wrong to sit in a cafe or a restaurant, to up- upgrade your car, your home. It's, it's never an issue of those outward things. It's always an issue of your heart, what's driving you, where your focus is, what's consuming your attention. But if God's pressing his finger on your life this morning, I want to encourage you to open yourself up to him and allow him to set you free from the love of money. Nothing wrong with having money, but it will have a toxic effect on your life if you let it, if you allow your heart to be too attached to it. Let's allow God to free us from that, free us from this materialistic focus on wealth and possessions, set us free to pursue the things that matter to him, loving God, loving each other, loving the world. Let's allow God to make us generous people. Let's allow God to help us pursue simplicity in our lives. Let's seek first his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we want to come before you honestly and just bring all the resources that you've placed at our disposal before you and just lay them down and say, God, these these are yours. Everything that we have is from your hand, God. Even if we've worked hard for it, everything we have is from your hand. And Lord, we just want to acknowledge now any way in which money, And stuff, possessions, have just snuck in and got more of a hold on our heart than they should have. Lord, you've blessed us with so many things. And we're grateful for that. But God, we know how easily we have taken these good things and we've turned them into God things. We've turned them into idols. And so God, we just lay these down now. We just say, God, our resources are yours. They're not ours. We pray that you would give us hearts of generosity. Just as we've freely received, help us to freely give out of the abundance of what you've given us. And Lord, help us to live in simplicity, not always having to have the next thing, the best things, more things, but to be content with what we have. And we thank you, Jesus, that for our sakes you became poor that we might become rich, not rich in a material sense, but rich towards you. And we pray that it would be that kind of richness that we pursue in our lives, richness of hearts that love you, the richness of relationship with you, the richness of living in your kingdom. And so God, help us to treat our money and our riches and our stuff as you want us to, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.